Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. My eating disorder started at seven. You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge and your daughter's not there. Find someone that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat, my baby is kicking me. You cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. There is hope. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am really, really excited to have the amazing Carolyn Coston joining me. She is not only a dear friend of mine, but also a colleague. And what she has done in the world of eating disorders is quite simply incredible. Carolyn is a world-renowned eating disorder clinician. She's an author. She's also an international speaker. And she was the first to publicly take the position that people with eating disorders can become fully recovered, something that I too am incredibly passionate about. During this episode, you're going to learn lots more about Carolyn and all the incredible things that she has achieved. So welcome, Carolyn. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's kind of exciting. It is exciting, isn't it? I would really like to begin with you giving our listeners an insight into your journey with eating disorders and how you came to be doing what you are doing now. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll try to make this short, you know. Well, you know, it's so interesting that I I developed an eating disorder before there were, you know, journal, before there were any books, no books, no journals you know, no treatment programs devoted to eating disorders. You know, I I developed it at a time when people didn't really know what was happening to me. So that was kind of an interesting thing in and of itself. There were a couple of articles written. Hilda Bruch had written an article about obesity and had a little tiny bit in the back about this thing, you know, anorexia nervosa, these girls she was seeing. So it was interesting in terms of my own looking at myself and what was happening to me and the thoughts that were in my head and all that. In some ways, I was fortunate to not have there be a whole big media thing around it because I started working internally, you know, with myself. And that's where I came up with the idea of eating disorder self and healthy self because I realized I had this internal battle going on in my head that there was a part of me that sort of knew better I wouldn't tell anyone else to do what I was doing. And yet, why was I listening to this part? So years later, when I became a therapist, I turned that into a big part of my treatment of how how to get people better. But real quickly, the evolution was, um, I did a lot of work on myself. I recovered and uh, I didn't think much about it. And when I became a therapist, 
someone said, oh, there's this girl who had the thing you had. And at first I was like, ooh, I don't know if I want to see her. But I did, and I felt like I knew kind of what was in her brain. And you know what that's like from your work as a coach. And I felt a, a huge amount of empathy, but I also felt I could challenge it and help her challenge it. Because since I had gotten over it, I figured she could. And then I just went on from that and little you know, referrals started trickling in until pretty soon I was the person in the area where if you had an eating disorder, you got referred to me, eventually realizing that some people needed more than outpatient therapy. So I ran hospital programs and then I realized that hospitals are not the best place for people to get better. Plus the fact that you don't need that kind of medical, intrusive, invasive medical treatment a lot of times when you have an eating disorder. And I opened the first residential in the United States. And then, wow, it just really, that Montanito took off. And, what um, year now, was the first one opened? 1996. And now I'm teaching people the new gap in the field that we're filling, Millie, is the coaching bit. That people who have had eating disorders have a legitimate place in the field to give back as long as they have training. And that other people who want training to be coaches can also do this work where it's, you know, not inpatient and not outpatient, but it's in the trenches with people, helping them to deal with the day-to-day life skills support that you need to do to get better. So that's my story in a nutshell. You're amazing. I just, I love what you've done with with really championing that lived experience because you and I both know how valuable it is. And I always say that it was something that was really missing from my own recovery was having someone who'd been there who I could lean on and really, really implicitly trust. We'll go more into coaching later on, but when you think back to being in your eating disorder, how would you describe it to someone? So someone who's completely uninitiated in the world of eating disorders, how would you describe what it feels like to be in an eating disorder? Well, it's kind of a slow takeover, you know? It's not like one day you're fine and the next day you have an eating disorder. It starts off where you feel like, you know, at least in my eating disorder, I had anorexia nervosa. So there's different ones. I can only describe really mine in some in some ways but you can extrapolate. And also I've treated thousands of patients and done this work for over 40 years now. So, but my own, it felt like at first that I was winning at this game. Everyone else tried dieting and I was succeeding at it. You know, I was the one who was able to go on the diet and stick to it. My, that's when my traits became involved. My, my anxiousness made me want to be, you know, and my perfectionism made me do it like I tried to get an A in dieting. And I did. And I just kept going. And and then it feels like it sort of takes over, like your brain gets hijacked. You don't realize that at first until you get to the point where you, what's interesting about it, and I think most people relate to this, you would, you realize there's a part of you that wouldn't tell anybody else to do what you're doing. So you realize that you have these two parts of self in your brain, like a, a part of you that knows, for example, when I got to really, really low weight and I saw the number on the scale and I realized that really thin people, I mean, you shouldn't weigh that much. And on the other hand, I'd look in the mirror and see myself like my stomach sticking out. So I knew, wow, there's something going on that I know I've got to get these two parts connected because I'm living like the split life. I think most people who have an eating disorder know that and recognize that. And that's why I start talking to them about it because I think most people realize you have a healthy core self in there 
and it can come out for other people, but we, and even the coaches and you know, um, teach people to bring it out for themselves. Absolutely. And I love your concept of the fact that, you know, recovery isn't about taking the eating disorder away. It is about making sure that we can get the healthy self to that point where it is strong enough to take care of the eating disorder self and that they can, you know, live in harmony. Because I I think too often people think that that is a part that needs to be banished, whereas it is a part of us. Yeah, it's the behavior that needs to be banished. You know what I mean? That part of us is the part of us that needed something attended to, that needed to be able to deal with problems or cope with issues or handle emotions or whatever it is. It's the behaviors that that part of us thinks that we, like we don't have to restrict to meet those needs. We don't have to binge or purge to meet those needs. And so the healthy self, once it takes over and it gets stronger and it takes care of us, then the eating disorder part just fades, but we still have that section of our psyche or personality or you ever want to call it that's there as an alarm signal to say you need to attend to something which is nice to know we you know all of us need that part that helps us to alert us when we need to pay attention absolutely during your journey with with your eating disorder were there times where you felt really hopeless and how did you keep that hope alive that you could come out the other side Well, what's interesting about that is I didn't have a sense about what recovered was. Mind you, there was no one that I tried to talk to who had ever seen anybody who had an eating disorder, treated anybody who had an eating disorder. I couldn't read anything about anybody who recovered from an eating disorder. So it's not like I had this idea that other people got to this place and it was hopeless for me to get there. But what I did feel was I'd take two steps forward and two steps back, you know? I would try to get better. I would see that I gained weight. I would freak out about it and I would lose weight. There were times when I really felt like I'm never going to get out of this trap. It wasn't like I knew what recovered was because I didn't have any idea or images of it, which is why it's so important to me that we share what being recovered is and that people who are recovered are out there working with people because I think, I mean, imagine that. Imagine having any illness and you've never seen or read about or talked to anybody who ever beat it. You know, that's what's so (laughs) strange. Yeah, exactly. And because it's such a powerful thing to see living, breathing proof that there is an end to it all and that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that there is that hope. People need to know because I really think, I mean, I thought, well, my brain is just like this. It's going to be like this. I thought that way for a long time. And, you know, clients say that all the time. Like, this is just how I think now. How am I going to stop thinking like this? And since I was able to stop counting calories, weighing myself, reading all the menus before I chose anything, trying to eat the least amount every single day, all those things I did as a routine matter, completely gone, completely gone. And so it's really important that we help other people understand you're not going to have to be fighting this one day at a time. This is not something you're always going to have to be recovering from. You can get to the point where it feels like it's gone. It's a thing of the past. And and I, I think that's hopeful. Oh, and I completely agree with you. And that's why I love this concept of full recovery, right? And I had so many people in my journey tell me that I something I would have to battle with for the rest of my life. It will always be there. It's something you will have to learn how to manage. And I remember feeling really defeated when I was told that. And it wasn't yeah. until I saw my NLP therapist and she said to me, you can change your brain. 
if you want to change your brain, you can change your brain. You don't have to think like this for the rest of your life. And it was like this revelation that she was saying, you can do this. And I think it's so important that people realize you don't have to deal with it for the rest of your life. But that is a similar thing. I mean, we can change our brain and you did learn that and you were lucky to have someone to show you that and to teach you that. I mean, we're very adaptive as as humans and we change those neural pathways. And, you know, sometimes I use the idea of learning how to play an instrument, learning how to play a violin or a piano or drive a car. In the beginning, we can't do it. We don't know how to do it. We feel like how are we ever, there's too much to learn. And then over time with practice, all of a sudden these neural pathways and then it's automatic. And then recovery is the same way. Being recovered just is this automatic way you're living your life now because you don't have those connections like eating this is bad, eating this is connected to fear. We can override those. We just need help to do it, especially initially when it feels so hard and, and scary. Absolutely. I always use that analogy of the eating disorder superhighway that you can just, you know, jump on. It's the freeway. It's easy. And then up in the hills, there's this goat track that someone's once bushwhacked and you've got to keep taking the goat track and really make that a carved out path. And it's to kind of give yeah. people an idea of these are neural pathways and they can be changed, but you've got to make that choice to take the harder route till eventually it becomes easier. And then of course we have to say, and it's going to feel worse before it feels better. It gets, it gets bad because when you're going against that grain, when you're going against uh, habitual behaviors that you have engaged in for a while, it always feels weird. It feels scary. It feels uncomfortable. It even feels like not you. So that's really hard about an illness. I, I have this phrase, you know, why does getting better feel bad? And I let clients talk about it and talk to their family members about it because people really need to understand that, that it does feel bad. And it's why we have to keep saying, yeah, but it doesn't always feel bad. Look at us. Look at people who are recovered. We would never go back, you know? What's hard is sometimes clinicians will say to people, well, if you gain weight, things will get better. And then people gain weight and they don't necessarily feel better. Sometimes they feel more yeah, they uncomfortable, feel more they tortured, feel right? And so then they think, well, this isn't going, recovery isn't going to work for me. Clients say that to me all the time. And so it's so important yeah. about how we word things so that people understand that, hey, it may get worse, probably is going to get worse before it gets better, but that you will eventually come out the other side. In the Eight Keys book that I wrote with uh, Gwen Grab, I tried to put examples of people who are recovered writing in there and saying things. And actually that book itself is an interesting one because I wrote it with a client who had been to Montanito who recovered from her eating disorder and then went on to become a therapist treating other people. So it was very interesting to write a book and we could write about these perspectives of she remembered things that I taught her and how at first she was resistant or didn't really believe it was going to work. And now she's a therapist helping other people. And I think that also is kind of a hopeful thing for, for people to see. Were there particular tools and strategies that you used in your recovery that were the most helpful? Yeah. I mean, the first one is that dialogue between my two selves, you know, writing in my journal and writing all these thoughts and then trying to realize, but who are these thoughts talking to? If they're telling me, don't eat that, you're going to get fat. Who are they talking to? Those sentences that I just wrote in my journal, who's the listening, witnessing presence? And what's the part of me that, you know, what 
is there anything that I can say back? So that was a huge realization for me um, early on. So that's one. The other thing is when you're the only one thinking you look a certain way, for example, if you feel fat, you think you look fat, you look at yourself in the mirror, compare yourself to other people, but everyone around you feels different. At some point, I came to this decision, this, okay, even though your perception, you want to believe what you see, you have to trust other people. You cannot be the judge of your own body. And I always use that mantra with clients. You can't be the judge of your own body. Maybe someday you'll be able to, I tell them, but you can't now. And now we know there's a lot of backup about that. There's a lot of scientific research about how the insula and the way it records the images and what we see of ourselves, I won't go into, but there's some scientific neuroscience research that demonstrates that. And then there's some other mantras like, every time I felt full, it scared me and I felt that it was bad. So I would just say full is not the same thing as fat. Full is not the same thing as fat. And I tried to get clients to come up with their own mantras. I actually even covered up mirrors in my house. And when I opened the residential treatment center, I took all the mirrors out of the house, except for the mirror in the bathroom for the girls to, you know, brush their teeth or their hair, put makeup on. But I took all the sliding door mirrors out of the bedroom and everything just because for a while, I don't think people can trust how they see themselves. They see themselves in these weird isolated parts like my thighs, my stomach, and they don't get a gestalt of themselves. And also the distorted perception that I was talking about. So I brought a lot of those things in from my own recovery. And I just thought it's better if I don't pay attention to that. It wasn't like I was fooling myself, but I felt like I know that it hurts me. I know that it affects me in a negative way. So why am I putting so much emphasis on it? I had to do the same thing with the mirrors because as you say, it wasn't fooling myself. It was just, I knew that whatever I saw wasn't going to be good enough, right, whatever. It was hurting me. So I just needed to take that complication away. Yeah. And even now I have very few mirrors in my house. It's so funny. It's not because, I mean, I can have them. I can go places where there's mirrors. I don't get triggered. But I find that we became overly obsessed with having mirrors everywhere in our houses as human beings. And, you know, what do I look like now? What do I look like when I go into this room or that room? And I think that kind of as a, it's the same thing about a scale, right? Um, What do you really use that information for with the reflection in the mirror or the number on a scale that makes you a better human being, more lovely, more soulful, more full of life? a better partner, a better friend. So it's okay to have stuff like that around, but I think I want less emphasis on those kind of things, you know? Oh, absolutely. I actually did a post this morning about compliments that aren't about physical appearance because even when we see one another, that is often what we what we say, oh, you look so fabulous. And it's all about how we look and we really need to change that, change that emphasis. Yeah, and I and I think these are really important things, even though we know it's not the only thing about an eating disorder. Sometimes people would say, oh, you're making too much of this because eating disorders have genetic components and biological components and psychological trauma issues and all that stuff. But still, there's still that driving force when you're trapped in an eating disorder that becomes so overwhelmed about what's going on with your body and what's going on with your weight. There's no doubt about it. And I think we have to address it, which is why in my definition of recovered, I say you're no longer willing to compromise your health or betray your soul to look a certain way, wear a certain size or reach a certain number on the scale. Absolutely. What 
is the most valuable thing that you think your eating disorder journey taught you? Probably that I'm a soul that happens to have a body and not the other way around. That probably is it. I mean, there's so many things because I feel like it taught me about being that witnessing presence inside. I think it also taught me empathy for these, for our traits, for, for the different traits we have and the shadow side or the dark side of our traits and how we need to use those and take them to the light. You know, our traits are our traits. And I realized I can't get rid of these things. Yeah, I know I'm kind of perfectionistic and anxious and, and a little bit compulsive, like with my grades and stuff. But I felt trapped when people thought, you know, you have to change that because I knew that's who I am. I don't think I can change that. And so realizing that how I use those traits in a positive way was super helpful. And it also just put me on this whole soul journey about researching things about, about Buddhist philosophy. And when you get into Buddhism, you get into all those things like what creates this human suffering. And it's not just what happens to us. It's what we tell ourselves about what happens to us, what we make of what happens to us. Practicing acceptance versus resistance. And so much what happens is not accepting the things that are, that are a given. And being in resistance to those brings on even more suffering. So it put me on this soul's path, I think. I always remember in the midst of recovery when I was reading uh, The Eight Keys for the first time, you talking about we're just here in our earth suit. Our bodies are our earth suit. And I loved that. Yeah. And I think I first, I try to give credit where credit's due. And I think I heard Eckhart Tolle say that at some point, but I've been using it so long. And, and then I thought back and thought, I think I heard that somewhere. So just to give credit, but I do think it's true. And I think it's a really important concept to continue to talk about because how do we use our body on this planet and what does it help us do and why do we want to feed it and take care of it and all that stuff because here we are on this planet and this is the only kind of suit that we could survive in here you know so being able to stop and look at it and it's hard going against the grain about all the stuff that's out there about the body image stuff that goes on in the world and the focus on appearance over substance it's an uphill battle. It's hard to fight. And here's the other thing, Millie, it's really important. I still care about it. I put my makeup on and my lipstick and blow dried my hair before I came on the show. I, I think you have to be careful that you don't make people feel bad for caring about how they look. It's really when it takes over. It's when, like I said, when you, you don't want to compromise your health over it. You don't want to sell your soul over it. And that is why I wrote that in the definition of recovered, because, you know, it's, it would be really hard to live on this planet and not care at all. I really try to help people find their way. Where is their balance? Where are they taking care of themselves? And yes, they care about their parents. They care about how they look. But I don't want them to be sick over it. I certainly don't want them to die over it. And many people who are in the hardcore throes of an eating disorder are way at the point where they realize, okay, this isn't attractive anymore. Whether it's binge eating disorder or anorexia nervosa or whatever, they realize, okay, uh, this is not attractive. But they're caught in it by that point. That's The brain is hijacked and they're no longer thinking this makes me look attractive. But even some of those people, take someone with anorexia nervosa, who's just really, really ribs sticking out thin will be say, I'm afraid though, if I eat, I'm going to get fat. So then it becomes this whole 
warped feeling of, which is really connected more with losing control. Absolutely it is. But I think you're right. It's, there's nothing wrong with, I love my fashion. I like to look nice, but I do that for me. I find it fun. I, I enjoy it. I don't particularly like wearing makeup, but you know, I really admire other people who have are amazing at doing makeup. And I don't think there's, you know, there isn't anything wrong with that. As long as it's something that you're doing for you, you're not doing it to please other people. You're not doing it to please society and these so-called societal norms that are out there regarding beauty. I think that's where the difference lies. Well, but I would just add some people with eating disorders would say, well, I'm doing this for me. You know, I don't care what other people mm. think. I'm restricting for me because I only like my body if it's under, you know, 80 pounds or whatever it is. So I would say, yeah, with the caveat that for your highest good, you know? So when you say I'm yes. doing it for me, you have to be careful that because some, you know, clients, they'll take that and say, well, I'm doing this for me. And I always say, but which part are you, you know? your healthy core self and really would you do that to anybody else? I'll always come back to this because I think people really get it when you when I say, would you tell anyone else to eat that little in a day? Or would you tell anyone else if they had a piece of pizza, they had to go purge it? And it's weird when they, you see them when they think about it and they're like, no, you know, I wouldn't tell them that. So then why are you telling yourself that? That's a very important thing that we have to get them to begin to reflect on. And I love that. I love that feeling of having someone stop and actually have to really think about this thing that they've been saying or way they've been acting and they haven't really thought it through. And, and that's what you want. You want the eating disorder mantra chatter to be stopped for a minute and to think, wait a minute, what do I really mean? Yeah. That moment of realization. Yeah, exactly. Now, you have done so many remarkable things since you've recovered from your eating disorder. And I know many of our listeners will be very, very familiar with your incredible work. But for those who aren't, Montanito, can you talk to me about what the philosophy was behind that? I know you said before so that it wasn't clinical, but when you and Bruce first created that first residential facility, where did it originate from? Well, two things. Well, a few things, really. Um, first, I was treating people in hospital programs because that was all that was available in the U.S. at that time. Outpatient therapy and hospitalization for people who got really bad and were too sick to remain in outpatient therapy. But I'm running these hospital programs and people would discharge and relapse. And I knew part of it was because they would go down to the cafeteria and you know get their food on a tray they didn't have any experience with shopping or cooking, you know, actually going to the grocery store, actually portioning the food, sitting at a dining room table like they were going to have to do when they go home. And I was saying, you know, this is not going to work. People need to be taught the skills that they have to use in order to survive their eating disorder out there. We can't just bring them in here, put weight on and expect them to go home and be in home, be in the kitchen or someone who, let's say, of someone who binged all the time. And they never had the experience to be around food because in the hospital, they didn't have the choice. And then they went home. How are they going to keep food in their house? So I knew I had to have a place that was recreated like a home environment. And so we would even set up all kinds of natural life uh, experiences, like going out to restaurants 
letting the clients have access to the kitchen, like someone who is a binge eater, or putting food in her room at night and saying, you can do whatever you want, see how it feels to have the food in your room, doing all kinds of things that I knew they were going to have to do when they got home. But I also wanted to add things like, and it's so weird talking about it now because it's so long ago, and nobody was doing it. They thought I was this woo-woo California therapist. Maybe I was, but you know, meditation and yoga that I knew was helpful. And it doesn't have to be religious. It isn't religious. It's realizing how to go inside and learn how to be that witnessing presence and have this awareness that you're not your thoughts, you're not your feelings, you're this wise presence underneath. You're aware of your thoughts and feelings. Once you get a bit of a separation, then you can learn how to begin to let them go, begin to respond to them instead of be overwhelmed by them, begin to react to them, you know? And I also wanted it to be a place in nature. I wanted a place where I felt like nature is healing. And you know I think that. And I love traveling and being in nature. And I thought, I, these hospital places just don't seem like any place to get well. So I had all of that, you know, and then I had this dream. And this is just really weird. And some people may choose to think I, you know, not believe it or whatever. But I had this dream. And I had this dream about this house. And I had six girls there and we were having dinner together and then we went for a hike. And I woke up and told my husband, Bruce, wow, I had this really weird dream that I owned this house and I was treating a bunch of patients there. We had a chef and, you know, we were eating together. It was really weird. And it was like about 12 years later, my girlfriend was buying a house. She wanted me to come look at it. I drove up the driveway and had that deja vu experience where I, first I didn't know, I said, wow, I think I've been here before. And then when I got out and walked up the stairs, I went, oh my God, I know this house. And by the time I got inside, I realized this is the house I dreamt about. I knew where the bedrooms were. I knew everything about the house. And it was my dream. And I realized that was a prophetic dream. And I said to her, I told her, and she said, oh, you can have the house. And that's how Montanito started. So it's a, there's a weird series of events. It was meant to be. I, I mean, I I'm waiting for my new dream to come now, but I don't know how that happens, quantum physics or whatever, but it happened to me and, and it was real. And you also, you know, things like equine therapy as well. You Yeah, I, I did do that. And that came from not the general equine therapy that I had uh, read about. And I, because there were places like Remuda Ranch here doing it and all that. But from a book I read called The Man Who Listens to Horses, about a guy who was abused by his own father, and he was, you know, a cowboy, and he related to the horses that had to be abused. In order for them to accept their rider, you know, they, they, would, they would, you know, beat them and whip them and tie them, and he realized there's got to be a better way. And he learned the whole way to communicate with horses through body language and how amazing that is and how much you learn about yourself. So I started checking it out and I realized it, there's this process called join up. And I realized there was a place close to the treatment center that I could take clients to start participating with horses. It wasn't even about riding. It was about using your body language and your sense of self. If you were anxious, the horse was anxious. If you could calm your own body, then you could see the horse get calm. And I could go on and on, but I did a lot of research and I, I actually trained some of the people who were at the horse place to go and get trained by Monty Roberts in this join up process and then would bring the clients there. Yeah, it's incredible. Just a totally new way of looking at treatment, 
which is now all over the world, including in Australia. (laughs) Now, Eight Keys to Recovery, where did that come about? I mean, you wrote it with the amazing Gwen. How did you devise the keys? This is a good story. Okay. So Norton Simon has a series, uh, Norton and Sons, um, the publisher, has a series of books. And they have, you know, um, eight keys to recovery from depression, eight keys to recovery from trauma. In this series, the woman who wrote the trauma book knew about me and talked to Norton about me, and they asked me if I would write the, the eating disorder one. And my first reaction was, there's no way. I mean, there's not eight keys to recovery from an eating disorder. There's like 2,508 keys. You know, I can't do that. And they really worked on me. Then I was on my way to see Gwen. It would be the first time I ever visit her as a professional therapist. I hadn't seen her for years. It it had been, I don't know, over a decade or so since she had been a client. I went to her office and I had told Norton, no, I don't think so. I, you know, I already wrote books. I'm kind of tired, you know, and I went to Gwen's office. She was showing me her file cabinet drawers and she pulled out the drawers and here's all the assignments that I'd ever given her while she was at Montanito. I mean, just folders and all these things that had just come out of my head that I would tell the clients to do, never thinking I was going to write a book about it. And uh, I looked at all the material and I said, Hey Gwen, you want to write a book with me? And when she said yes, I thought this is going to be an interesting project from someone who's recovered, who treated somebody who became recovered, who's now treating others, you know? And she had all this material. And so then we got together and and I really thought about what are these overarching concepts? What are eight overarching concepts that I really think people have to do in order to get better? And they were all the things that I really was doing at Montanito. And of course, some of them are big. Well, key three is it's not about the food and key five is it is too about the food. Those are big concepts that I could put a lot of information in. So in the end, I was happy about it. At first I thought self-help book for eating disorders. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to sound like overly pompous that, oh yeah, you can have a self-help book and get better. But it's weird. It, It got way more popular than I even thought. And I get a lot of emails from people saying, it put them on their road to recovery. So I think many share it with coaches or therapists or dietitians or whatever, but there are people out there using that book and going along on that book and the workbook on their own. So I'm grateful that I did it, but it was, I kind of stumbled into it in a way. Yeah. When you left Montanito, you decided to start the Carolyn Coston Institute. Why do you believe that lived experience is so powerful? Well, a big part of it is that motivation and hope thing that we talked about at the beginning of this, because I think it's sad. And I still meet people who say, oh yeah, I've never talked to anybody who's recovered. Now it's a lot less likely nowadays, but, but believe me, when I was doing this 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, I countlessly came upon people who said, I never met anybody who was recovered. And I have to say for, for your audience, all the clients who came originally from Australia came and said they never talked to anybody who was recovered, they never met anybody who was recovered, and they were never told they could be recovered. Every single Australian and New Zealand client who came to Montanito over those years when I was there. And I remember thinking, what is happening? It's almost like 
in that time, Australia was back where the U.S. had been when I opened Montanito. But I think also it's because there was nobody like me, and now there's you and, and a lot of other people who are doing it, going around and saying, yes, I am recovered, yes, you can be. Don't let anybody tell you that's not true. And this is important for me to add. I do not believe that everyone is going to be recovered. I'm not foolish. I have had, have seen people years ago who are still suffering. I know people who have died from this illness. I'm not the kind of person who puts my head in the sand and says, you know, everybody will be recovered. But I treat everybody as though they can be. Because, you know, I've seen people who had an eating disorder for 30 years, 40 years, who are recovered today. And so I don't look at anybody and say, you can't. It just doesn't make any sense to me to do that. Absolutely. Now, with CCI, so the Carolyn Costin Institute, where did the original idea for that like come from? Well, it's strange because I knew that I wanted to keep teaching and it was one of the only things. I had a very strict non-compete agreement with the people I sold Montanito to. I couldn't work for another eating disorder clinic, but I could do private practice and I could teach and train. And I had already started to do a little bit of this, but I had a lot of uh, recorded training sessions and a lot of talks I had given that had been taped. And so I decided there are a lot of therapists and dietitians who need continuing education units, you know, to keep up their degrees. And there's not a lot of places to go to get specific eating disorder training. So that's one arm of it. The next arm of it, the coaching arm, came at me in a few different ways. I had originally, when I, even when I worked back in hospitals, I had originally hired people that, I called them support counselors. I didn't even think of the word coaches back then. But I hired them to go out to meals with clients when they got out of the hospital, go to their house and help them set up their kitchens and all these things. And this is going back to the 80s when I was doing this. But fast forward to towards the end of when I was at Montanito, there were a few people, a few of my former staff members who were saying, I think I'd like to do some coaching. And they kind of explained, you know, there's life coaches and sober coaches, but there's not really eating disorder coaches. So after I left Montanito, a couple people, you know, approached me again and I started looking on the internet and looking for training, where these people get training and realized there was no training, there was no certification. For all these different coaching things, there wasn't any for eating disorders. And I knew because the way I trained my therapist, my therapist and myself included, would take people out to eat, take people to buy clothes, but most therapists don't do that. They don't go to mm. restaurants with clients. They, don't, they, don't, they certainly don't go to their houses and help them cook a meal or set up a kitchen and all that. And I realized, oh, wow. I mean, there's a huge lack and this gap that I've always known about. And it's so perfect. I'm allowed to do it. I'm allowed to do training. I could easily train coaches. I've been a champion of people who are recovered. It just seemed like it was right there waiting for me to do it. And I wasn't sure how it was going to be. I didn't go around promoting it, doing talks about it. I wanted to make sure, am I right, that this really works? And as you know, because you took the course, it's a very rigorous, it's not like a weekend or a couple no. of course. It takes about a year and there's an internship with supervision and everything else. It's very rigorous because I think if you're going to be out there working with these clients, you have to really be trained and know what you're doing, not cross the line into therapy or being a nutritionist, 
know how to work with a team, all those things that you and I talked about in our, in our ANZED talk, you know, but it, it, after about a year, a year and a half, I was like, wow, this is really working. I not only get testimonials from clients, but from therapists and dietitians who, in fact, I, someone just the other day sent me a video testimonial saying, I never want to work with an eating disorder patient without a coach again. It was just amazing. But I also want to come back to the fact what you said about there is a certification because I think it's so important because it's really dangerous online at the moment. There are so many people out there who are saying that they are coaches and they don't have the, they don't have a certification. And some of the things that they are saying are really, you know, can be really problematic. So it's so important if someone's looking for a coach that they look, that they've got a certification. Well, that was one of the things, you know, in the talk that we were giving, and, and it's weird because when I did residential treatment and filled in that gap, you know, when I came up with that, I went around saying, it, when I saw it being replicated in places, I thought, I better tell people what I think is important. And I didn't do that because I wanted to say, oh, I'm so good, I do it right. I wanted to do that because I said, there are standards that you have to look for in residential care. You have to be very careful that it's not just someone that opened a house and brings in people. And it's the same thing with coaching, you know? It, it, there has to be a certification. There has to be a rigorous amount of training. There have to be exams. At, so you know the person has retained the material and there has to be supervision by a clinician, you know, with an internship. And so I do say that, but, but I, I knew that was gonna happen. And I, I, the thing I'll say about it is, it's part of the reason why people told me not to do it. People were saying, well, it's not regulated and you shouldn't go into that. But this, people told me the same thing about residential care. Don't do it and, you know, you'd be the first one and people won't understand it. But I did, I did it because it's necessary and people are going to have to learn and we are all going to have to learn what to look for and what's appropriate about coaching and, and what to stay away from. How many CCI coaches are there around the world now? There's about 57, I think it is, 57 coaches in eight countries, which is amazing. Fantastic. That's, that's incredible. I would like to see there be hubs of coaches in every single country around the world. I'd really love them in every state of Australia as well, because I think, well, I, I know every single day I see the value in it. And, and like you, I get testimonials about how it has just allowed people to really level up in their recovery. And sometimes they've just got to that point where they've just been always get to that point where they're in pseudo recovery. And then just to get to that space of full recovery, it's the difference has been to have someone walking that path with them that has been there before and can can show and prove to them that there is, there is hope on the other side. At Ended, community, connection, and compassion underpin everything that we do. How important do you think it is to have a really strong community around you when you're recovering? I know that you said to me recently that you felt like the NDED model was something that needed to be replicated around the world. So how important is community? I think it's huge. I mean, I certainly think the people, the clients that I still hear from felt like something happened to them. Connections were made that there were there was something about the trust and the bonding and i think that's really important we allowed them to reach back we allowed them to 
call back and speak to their therapist if they got in trouble. Every single client got a birthday letter from me. For as long as I ran Montanito, every client who left got their graduation certificate sent to them on the anniversary of their graduation, which is a letter they wrote to themselves their EDUs agreement that they were going out into the world with, and then they got something on their birthday. And my husband used to call it the umbilical cord, you know? You're still connected. You're a part of something bigger than just yourself. And they and we had alumni retreats where every year we had a gathering where people could show up and we spent the weekend. And uh, I think people will say that having that community and feeling a part of almost a movement, you know, bigger than oneself was really, really helpful. Even if it was just with each other when they left, you know, some people, some of the clients started these groups, a couple people started an online, you know, their own little Facebook groups. Yeah, I think it's big. I feel bad about the way sometimes treatment centers, you know, when you leave, you're not allowed to call afterwards, you're not allowed to communicate. I mean, there's something about, it's the way people used to do group therapy. I mean, original group therapy was you had a group and then nobody was even allowed to talk to each other outside of group. That was a whole psychodynamic concept that was developed because then people could have relationships and they might, these two might like each other more than these two. I'm just more humanistic than that. And I think we have to work things out, that we have to work things out. But I just think that there's a, a human need to be connected and to feel like you're a part of something. And, and I see those people are friends with each other today, even. Yeah. And I agree with you about that humanistic quality. I think that's so, so important because all too often people's experiences have been so clinical and it just doesn't work. And, you know, it's okay. I mean, obviously you have to have the clinical stuff, but I always say this person first, patient second, you know, and there's no reason for it not to be. There really isn't. People say, oh, what about boundaries? You know, you still maintain boundaries. They're just a little bit different, but you're clear about what they are and careful about it, but they're different than maybe some other people's boundaries. And, it, and I do, I think it has to be collaborative. I don't think we bring people in and say, okay, we're going to do this and this and this to you. And that's how you get out. I think that happens too. when things get bigger and places grow and they're treating a lot of people, then they get reduced to protocols and procedures, you know, that, that everyone can follow because it's easier than treating the person completely as an individual, you know. I want when people walk in the door, them to feel like they've come to a home. Everybody got fresh flowers in their room, you know, everybody got a journal. Parents were offered a, a cup of tea, come and sit down and, you know, I mean, that's how it should be. And there's no reason that it can't have high clinical expertise and that. People would look at that and say, oh, that's just like a fluffy place run by recovered people. And it's like, no, they have their three individual sessions a week. We do all that stuff, but there's no reason it can't be under this umbrella of a kind of loving, nurturing, home-like environment. There's no no reason why it can't be that. Absolutely. And you're right. The clinical aspect has to be there, but the approach needs to be holistic. It needs to be individualized. And we know that eating disorders tailor themselves to the individual. So how can we possibly think that a blanket approach to treatment is going to work? Now, what, in your opinion, are some of the best ways that people can support a loved one who's going through an eating disorder? 
Well, you know, I wouldn't have said this when I wrote the book, but interestingly enough, a ton of people, parents, spouses, brothers, have said that reading the eight keys helped them understand the mindset of someone who has an eating disorder. Because what's really important to understand is you definitely want to understand that they're captured by this illness, brains hijacked, you want to have empathy, but you also don't want to go overboard in that way and make it seem like what they're doing is just fine. And because that book challenges eating disorder self, healthy self, and because that book shows how to take your traits from the darkness to the light, you know, from liabilities to assets, it has helped, particularly parents, I think, in knowing how to talk to their kids and, and spouses too, and in a way that is, is useful, in a way that is respectful and compassionate, but can also throw some challenges in there, which I think is important. The only thing I would advise against is trying to be too overly clinical. Like if someone reads the book or learns this concept and then says, oh, that's just your eating disorder talking, that's dismissive. That's not what I'm going for ever. It's more like, oh, I want to hear what your eating disorder has to say. And why does it say that? And what do you think you might say back? But some people have turned yes. it into, oh, that's your eating disorder trying to make you do this and that or the other thing. So that's important. I think not thinking that it can be bribed away or that, that it's going to be an easy turnaround, not thinking that your loved one is telling you the truth because more than likely there are things they are unable to tell you. I know a lot of parents just been, fall apart. Like we always had a good relationship. I, she always tells me the truth. And meanwhile, I know that she's lying through her teeth about what she's eating or whatever. I, and I think don't be too stuck on that think, uh, you're probably not telling me everything and that's okay. I get it. You know, I understand it. Getting some, some backup for yourself from someone who really knows eating disorders, because there's a lot of lines in terms of where to give and where not to give, you know, like what battles do you want to fight? And you can't fight every single battle. It's just not worth it. Like I know, um, oh, they have to eat this particular food or they have to eat whole milk. You know, it has to be whole milk. And if they don't eat whole milk, then they're getting away with not having enough calories. That, to me, that's not a battle worth fighting as long as you are helping them make sure they get the calories in. So I think having someone guide you in terms of what battles to fight or not fight is really important. I think in many ways, FBT was helpful. Family-based treatment was really helpful in coming out and getting families involved and not blaming families and saying, look, I mean, what I, what I say to family members is sort of along those lines, look, if you could do for your kid what I'm doing for your kid in residential, you wouldn't need me. So my job is to teach you what it is I do that works. Again, there's not a one size fits all. So I don't necessarily follow, you know, you have to do the, 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 you have to know this family, this parental dynamic, this couple dynamic, this kid's dynamic. I would say parents, you know, don't, think that there's a one treatment that's going to be the one. If one isn't working, look around, look for specialists, look for a different one because we're, we're not all the same. I think that's so, so important. Finally, what would you like to leave our listeners with today? Those who are still battling in the trenches of an eating disorder, what, what words of wisdom do you have for them? <laughs> Well, I probably already said it in the way, I mean, basically it, I got better. I don't have any magic skills. 
I think what I always want to leave with people is if I could do it, you could do it too. So that's one. And I guess the other one, which I've sort of already said is find someone ultimately that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. The other thing I see a lot uh, everywhere I go and every country I speak is people who are going to therapy, going to psychiatrists, you know, going to their treatment and not telling the truth about what they're doing because they don't really trust. They don't trust that the other person is going to handle that with care. They don't trust that they can say it and not be judged or not be over controlled, you know. And it's true. You might tell things like that that would put you in a situation where the person thinks, oh, you need to go into treatment and there might be some power struggle over that. But the alternative of going to treatment and, and not trusting somebody enough to tell the truth, really what happens is it's like going to a doctor and you need a physical and you bring somebody else's blood and urine, you know? <laughs> you can't have someone help you if they don't know the internal you. So I guess, yeah, I would say that. If you don't have someone you would trust, there are people out there, you will find someone you could trust. And I would say, keep looking for it. I think those are wonderful words of wisdom and I know that they will really help so many. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show today. It's really, really neat to talk to you more about some of the history behind some of the things because some of those stories we haven't talked about. So I really, really enjoy. We've talked about a lot of things in our many catch-ups, but not that. So thank you. Well, I am so happy. Honestly, thank you for having me. You know, I endlessly love to talk about this. I'm fascinated that people are still interested in it. But what I have to tell myself is, like you said, there's a lot of that stuff that you didn't know. I think, oh, it's old, old news. But... And Jeanette, the director of operations for CCI, tells me all the time, there's a lot of young up, up and coming therapists who they haven't heard you speak. They don't know this stuff. They, you need to keep getting it out there. So I appreciate that the younglings, you know, people like you do these kinds of interviews and get me on. And I really appreciate that you have always really seen me and what I've done in the field. And that that's very touching, Millie. And I, I really, appreciate that you give me that gratitude and you and you do it all the time I mean really it's very it's very touching you're gonna make me cry I well I don't I don't really have words for the gratitude that I feel because I wouldn't be doing what I do every single day I wouldn't be using what was the hardest part of my life and helping other people and you're out there as a champion I mean I think you are and you know you are sort of changing the landscape of Australia and I've been out there several times and and tried to help out. I still want to help. As soon as I can get over there, I'll try to help more. And and you know there's been some rough climbs and some arrows thrown, but you're doing it just like I did because you know in your heart and soul it's the right thing. So we're soul sisters in this together. That's that's what we are. Yeah, we are. And But I wouldn't be here doing this if you hadn't paved the path for people with lived experience to be recognized as they are. So I cannot thank you enough. And doing this today has just been so wonderful. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. There is hope at andad.org.au. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you.
This is a Cast Co Media production.